Good day. You're listening to European Buddha. Influenced by the Dalai Lama and other Buddhist scholars, a dialogue between Buddhism and science has developed in recent decades. There are representative figures of these fruitful encounters, such as Francisco Verela, Alan Wallace, Mathieu Ricard, and many others. Interesting conversations and dialogues were held in many disciplines between Buddhism and neurology, physics, biology, psychology, and philosophy. Uh, to begin the episode, I would bring some quotes from the Dalai Lama, who were saying, dealing with the insights of science does not mean that one doubts Buddhism, but that one perceives it in a new light. And on the other hand, I would like to quote Werner Heisenberg, a famous representative of quantum physics, who once wrote in 1974, I think that striving to transcend opposites, to arrive at a synthesis of rational understanding and mystical experience of unity is the basic myth of art age that everyone is consciously or unconsciously searching for. With this being said, welcome to today's episode of the European Buddha. Hello, Emilia. I hello, hello. I pass it to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's been very nice and sunshiny day, and we are quite excited about our guest today. Um, so warmly welcome, dear listeners, and warmly welcome Antonino Raffone. Just a few words about him before we let him start. Um, Antonino Raffone has completed PhD in psychology at Sapienza University of Rome and the European Diploma in Cognitive and Brain Science. Also in Sapienza University of Rome, he holds a position of associate professor at the Department of Psychology. Both his research and teachings have been described as interdisciplinary and multi-method based. They are mainly focused on consciousness, mindfulness, meditation, attention, well-being, and their neural correlates with different methods of investigation. Warmly welcome, Antonino Raffone. We are super excited to have you here. And um, I have to ask, like, first, how did you end up doing what you're doing at the moment? You, uh, thanks for uh, this um, opportunity, and uh, I can uh, have an appreciation for uh, the uh, European Buddhist uh, Union and uh, for its role in uh, in Europe. And so I got uh, connected to it through the uh, my Zen teacher, Venerable Dario Doshin uh, Girolami. I um, believe that uh, the practice of uh, Buddhism, which is a practice actually, and Dharma is um, deeply transformative in, uh, in life. And this happened also to, to my life, actually, since uh, 2004. And it's really a matter of uh, practice. So it's uh, through the meditation practice and through life practice, whatever uh, uh, occasion life uh, brings us and so there is this uh, opportunity to transform uh, our mind 
to transform our life. And uh, the work that we do is uh, actually the work uh, on uh, um, becoming more and more aware of uh, our uh, our mind, our um, mechanisms, our uh, habits, <laughs> especially uh, the ones that we may not necessarily like. <laughs> but it's good uh, to, in some ways, uh, remodel in some ways. So it's a psychological work. And uh, the Buddha is, uh, in my view, uh, the greatest uh, psychologist of ever. So <laughs> Nobel Prize in psychology because of these <laughs> insights on the mind. And uh, I say, look, if we look at uh, the current studies uh, on, uh, let's say, uh, emotion and compassion and uh, awareness, how much this, there is this convergence. So I think uh, what is, uh, uh, I found remarkable was, uh, first of all, to um, practice. And then uh, I was fortunate the, to have the possibility to uh, also study the effects of meditation uh, on uh, the mental states and so on. And uh, the two can be interestingly combined. But of course, when you are practicing meditation or you are in a meditation retreat, it's good to forget about science then <laughs> because it's a distraction. So uh, where do you see cooperation between Buddhism and science? So both have methods. Buddhism has methods, science has methods, and it's somehow they have, they share a field. In your regard, it's like consciousness. And uh, where do you see like the overlapping or the cooperation between a religion and uh, like something that we call science? Or maybe Buddhism is not a religion. What do you say? Oh, very good uh, uh, question. Uh, in uh, I would say that uh, Buddhism has uh, uh, the flexibility to be, uh, of course, it is a religion and uh, it's um, a time-honored uh, religion and also can uh, be uh, offer psycho uh, psychological insights. So as a psychologist, I um, very much value these uh, insights from uh, Buddhist uh, psychology and uh, uh, philosophical insights that can be relevant also for other sciences. You first, uh, Martin, you mentioned uh, Heisenberg, you know, also insights about uh, our um, physics or uh, um, uh, other disciplines. So there are different uh, levels, different uh, possibilities to uh, relate to, to Buddhism. And I think that uh, Buddhism offers this very refined uh, first-person um, uh, investigations. So everyone uh, going in depth through these uh, practices, uh, meditation practices, can have insights about the functioning of uh, consciousness, mental states in a very subtle, even in a very subtle way, about the self, for example, no? what is uh, this, uh, uh, what uh, actually, how is the self constructed, no? when we say I, me, mine, in the consciousness. And this, uh, I think uh, it's uh, when you have uh, actually persons uh, who are trained in a very refined 
trained introspection, they can uh, observe uh, uh, very clearly the processes of our uh, mind, body system. And uh, so they can be uh, offer more reliable information for uh, understanding of uh, uh, consciousness, emotion, mental states. So the idea is that uh, uh, if you have these uh, uh, participants in uh, psychological or uh, consciousness or uh, neuroscientific uh, experiments with this, this level of uh, reliability and uh, uh, introspective ability, also psychological and cognitive and affective neuroscience experiments can become more refined. You already uh, mentioned uh, your teacher's names, uh, Dario Girolami. Uh, was it so that kind of Buddhism came a bit later to your life while you were doing studies in mm. Buddhism? How did Buddhism come to, into, into your life? Mm. Very, uh, I think uh, this question uh, is, uh, is interesting to me because uh, uh, I think when I was a student and then a young researcher and then uh, a lecture at university uh, at the time I was uh, working in uh, in England. Uh, uh, my thoughts were uh, a bit like a bit a materialistic kind of approach. No, so the brain and so through the brain we can understand uh, many mm. aspects of uh, um, I don't know our uh, uh, thoughts, memory, consciousness. So and I was very much a kind in a science scientist mode no so really my but then uh, i uh, through the challenges of life uh, i had i mean uh, experience uh, in uh, in buddhism of dukkha no this sense of the dissatisfaction kind of uh, um, sense of uh, even suffering uh, non controlling things so given point i was uh, uh, also for uh, uh, personal situations, uh, kind of uh, in a distress, psychological distress. And then, likely, I got in contact uh, with uh, a book about Buddhism. And uh, so, and when I read about that, I thought, uh, oh, wow, is this. So, I thought uh, Buddhism was a religion, and indeed it is a religion, but uh, what is. It is not about God uh, or about. Uh, <laughs> It's really about our mind. Wow, that's a that's a beautiful story. I I have here a book, uh, Buddha's Brain, uh, by Rick, ha- Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius, and this was something that really that was the like this really opened to me the door kind of. Uh, it's a practical neuroscience to happiness, wisdom, and love, and. I've always been amazed of brain and mind and here like they go come together and you're also doing a lot of uh, brain uh, research. Brain is a complex organ, controls thoughts, memory, emotions, touch, motor skills and together with the spinal cord, it makes up the central nerve system. And can you tell something about this thing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, very good. Very, very nice uh, phrasing. Thank you, Emilia. And uh, really, I think uh, 
um, uh, bringing uh, the contemplative science perspective, but even in uh, being in uh, studying consciousness, uh, I think uh, it's uh, very important to uh, avoid the reductionist perspective, no? uh, which is, uh, I think it's uh, still uh, quite widespread in, uh, in science, in, in, even in consciousness uh, science, uh, over the idea of reducing uh, you know, our mind and our consciousness to brain activity. I think this uh, uh, is not, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, the appropriate approach because uh, it's definitely interesting to, to study the complex dynamics and processes and mechanisms of the brain, but um, no way we have possibility to reduce our uh, experience, our mind, our emotions, our consciousness to brain uh, or neuronal activities. Uh, so uh, this is why uh, I value the neurophenomenological perspective that was brought uh, by Francisco Varela, uh, um, Thompson, uh, others, Antoine Lutz, uh, because then we can see, we can investigate the complex dynamics of the brain web, and, but uh, in a non-reductionist uh, way, and also, we should uh, consider that the brain uh, alone would not uh, be able to, to make anything sensible. So the brain is in interaction, as you said, with the autonomous nervous system in ongoing interaction with uh, hormones uh, that flow through the body. And uh, very interesting also the interactions between the heart and brain signals in uh, um, we have neurons uh, also in uh, our uh, gastro, uh, uh, so uh, intestinal uh, system. So uh, the second friend. brain, second brain. Yeah, for example, <laughs> and all, obviously, uh, I, I uh, in in Buddhism uh, there is this uh, emphasis on emptiness also. No, so we can easily say that uh, the brain lacks uh, intrinsic existence; is empty of intrinsic uh, existence. It, only what the brain does depends on uh, the interactions between its parts, and which are dynamic interactions, and there are also interactions with uh, other parts of the, of the, of the body uh, outside the brain, and also on the environment. We, we are in uh, 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 ongoing coupling with uh, the environment, so with others, so... Um, this is uh, uh, crucial. This, uh, so this is an, an activist perspective, which is very important uh, to, to, to consider. I found it uh, interesting that you just said like right now, the brain itself, it's empty. Yeah. Or it, it has <laughs> an existence by itself. Yeah. It, it makes quite some sense to uh, come to the conclusion. Well, if we look at it, if we examine it, it's not a thing on its own. Many things that need to come together in order for the brain to function. And mm -hmm. it's the same question, I think, the famous one, uh, uh, the concept of I or me. Where is it located? Like, where is it in the brain? And I don't know uh, how far the research is concerned right now. But uh, from a Buddhist point of view, it's uh, quite difficult to find the brain or the me is mm. that right 
Absolutely. No, very good uh, points. Uh, thank you, Martin. It's uh, really, uh, you said it very well. It's, uh, I agree. And um, because uh, uh, in a sense, uh, um, the, definitely there is no part of the brain in which we can uh, find the self. Uh, there is a network, a very important network that is called the default mode network, which has a close association to, let's say, aspects of the self. But some parts, uh, it lacks clear boundaries. This is also important. So uh, because uh, uh, this network interacts also with other networks of the brain. So it cannot work alone. So uh, if we zoom in the default mode network, it also uh, lacks uh, intrinsic existence. So it's empty of intrinsic existence. So the network interacts with other networks, uh, which interact uh, with uh, the environment, with other parts of the body. Very important, it's also the so-called interoception, which is uh, the, the brain that receives signals from uh, uh, the uh, visceral part of the body, you know, from our even stomach, heart uh, area, and uh, the breast, and, uh, and so on. So, um, and also some, uh, I very much like a theory that has been developed by Sean Gallagher, a great phenomenologist and cognitive scientist. And uh, I have got in collaboration with uh, Sean Gallagher and other collaborators, including uh, contemplative scientists, neuroscientists, um, Buddhist teachers, on the idea to link these uh, uh, theories called the pattern theory of self, regarding the self as a dynamic pattern and Relating this to uh, the five aggregates, the five skandhas in Buddhist psychology. And uh, so, again, seeing the self as a coalition, a dynamic coalition, a gestalt of different aspects. Some of these being related more to, it's called minimal self, like the bodily self, some to the narrative self, some others to the cognitive aspects, other to intersubjective aspects, and so on. So it's really the self as a dynamic uh, aggregate of different components that change over time. So it's not a fixed entity, but it's a dynamic process. Yeah, and depending on your situation, you can feel that eye is on the head. Quite often we're in our head, sometimes on the heart, sometimes on the guts. <laughs> And, and our stories also, the yeah. stories that uh, we tell ourselves, the stories that uh, others say about uh, us, and all this is form a kind of uh, uh, pattern, a dynamic pattern that uh, uh, changes, changes depending on the situation with whom uh, we are, depending on our uh, roles, uh, role playing, our, so to speak, masks, uh, <laughs> Uh, our body conditions, our affective conditions. So the affective uh, element of the self is also very, very, very important. Buddhism is also concerned with other beings, that knowledge has a therapeutic orientation mm. to reduce suffering, increase compassion, and reframing the, you could say, the brain in this way. How important is that in your scientific work, this outlook, this um, ethical outlook? 
Very important. Now, I think uh, more and more uh, our uh, contemporary psychology and uh, neuroscience, I think, uh, still uh, need to acknowledge uh, what in Buddhism is very clear. So, uh, which is uh, uh, Dukkha, the first noble truth. So, the idea, uh, we say, okay, someone uh, is uh, in a clinical condition psychopathological condition, suffering of uh, depression, anxiety, or uh, sometimes they could say maybe people, uh, even if uh, they don't have uh, a clinical, not psychopathological diagnosis, they can suffer for stress sometimes. This is somewhat acknowledged, the effects of distress. But uh, uh, I think uh, the existential layer that everyone is uh, actually uh, suffering in a sense of dukkha, no? We are all uh, have this level of uh, uh, in, in unsatisfactoriness, no? Or uh, uneasiness. Uh, uh, even if we are not uh, depressed or clinically depressed or uh, anxious or... And this is very important to acknowledge. So I think uh, if uh, we bring uh, uh, awareness uh, into uh, this, uh, actually the first noble truth, that uh, there is... Uh, uh, there is no, and this is existential uh, in, in a sense. And we try to understand this also in terms with the powerful methods of uh, science, no, of uh, psychology, neuroscience. We can have more and more uh, insights, realizing a more, uh, it's called uh, eudaimonic happiness. So the idea that we don't get into this hedonic trap, no, the idea that uh, so we should have very clear insight about the difference between happiness and pleasure, no? And this is a more, I think, uh, there is interesting work done in uh, positive psychology that works on these issues. So uh, addressing what are the uh, uh, conditions for a more uh, enduring uh, happiness. Uh, but still, I think uh, positive psychology can do a, can go deeper and uh, Alan Wallace, Lama Alan Wallace, is uh, really is, I think, uh, working interestingly in this to show that really uh, we there is possibility for human being to develop a deeper, uh, authentic happiness or uh, uh, genuine well-being. Uh, and of course, it's not just my happiness. When we go to this level, we realize that. Uh, it's really through the interconnection that our happiness is interdependent with uh, the happiness of others, of course. How, how is it that when we have all the, the wisdom and like also science backs up, up with these all tools to be well and happy, how is it so difficult to make it real in the real life? And uh, what are you tools for this? I think uh, the tricky point is uh, really the work, uh, as Martin was mentioning, the going beyond the self and realizing the emptiness of the self. Mm-hmm. It has some challenges for, I think, for every uh, human being, because you really need to let go of your uh, views about the self and some, also even worldviews, uh, because uh, in order, when we grow up, we need a level of uh, stability, of attachment. We need to develop a personality. We need this level of stability. But then 
the risk is that we become uh, overattached or overconditioned by this attachment to our um, uh, worldviews, to our uh, views about ourselves, who we are, and uh, what we like and what we dislike. So in some sense, we become rigid. And this, I think, increases as Buddhist psychology and Buddhist teachings and practice show increase our suffering because we, in some sense, become uh, too uh, attached, too rigid and uh, too tense. And a lot of energy is needed to defend, you know, this self, this view. Then we, we, we have a feeling of uh, uh, separation and uh, even contrast, conflict. Maybe in the future, uh, students who like to study psychology and Buddhism could also uh, have a class on meditation and practice it. But maybe this is in the future. I don't know if it's offered in Sampienza University. We have done uh, also with the Venerable Dario Doshin Girolami and uh, others. We have had uh, regular uh, seminars also. Uh -huh bringing uh, meditation, teachings from uh, Buddhism with uh, um, uh, open classes. So uh, uh, with the possibility for students, uh, uh, colleagues uh, mm -hmm. uh, to join, but also uh, people from uh, outside, uh, in, uh, from society, psychologists, professionals. So, and this is emphasized more and more in Italian university. It's called the third mission of university, to connect with society, to open the doors, uh, the gates of uh, academy, and uh, so meet uh, uh, people. And uh, um, so, and this is related to the transmission of knowledge, but also this could be related to um, include also the sharing of uh, wisdom uh, from uh, time-honored contemplative traditions such as uh, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the fun part because we can all like now spread this challenge to bring practice into everyday life. Like I have a team at work and uh, sometimes we start a meeting with a little, maybe mindfulness practice or just uh, breathing and little meditation. It's really nice to bring this sense of space and freedom to people's life. So maybe in the end, I would like to uh, ask you about the network you initiated with Lama Lundrup in the EBU context. What is it about um, and what do you want to do? Yes, uh, so with uh, Lama Lundrup, uh, Dario Dushinjirolami and also Ron Akon, the president of EBU, is, uh, is uh, nicely involved uh, And uh, we have seen uh, a potential and interest also from uh, European uh, contemplative scientists, uh, philosophers, science, neuroscientists, is uh, really to um, actually inspire to have uh, a dialogue on a peer basis between uh, people with different expertise. And uh, interestingly, through the EBU, uh, different uh, Buddhist tradition and different Buddhist lineages can be involved in this dialogue with scientists and uh, philo philosophers, also uh, with humanities as well. It's very, very interesting. And I think uh, this could be uh, fruitful. Of course, the idea is also to have uh, 
collaboration and exchanges with other relevant uh, organizations like Mind and Life Europe, uh, uh, CMC International Association, uh, and so on. And I think uh, that, uh, being this network, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, within the, the EBU, but open no, to uh, interfacing uh, and dialogue uh, with uh, academy, universities, and other relevant organizations, uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah, we are, uh, we are open uh, and uh, we trust uh, that uh, interesting uh, developments may arise. Sounds very good. Looking forward. <laughs> <laughs> In the preparation of this episode, we spoke, Emilia and I, and we were saying like, Oh, we would like to visit some lectures in the university in Rome. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Sapienza University of Rome is uh, is the largest uh, university in Europe. And so also with some challenges, as you can imagine. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very good uh, opportunity that you have, like uh, with uh, Dario Girolami, yourself, um, having these corporations. And I think it's a very valuable contribution in our Western society, here it comes together. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I do agree. I feel uh, uh, really uh, happy and uh, honored to have these opportunities of dialogue with uh, Dario Shinjirolami and other teachers from different uh, uh, Buddhist uh, and uh, contemplative, uh, also other contemplative uh, traditions. Very good. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> Thank you very much. 